From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. Nell Larson is away this week, so joining me as co-host is Claire Wiley. Good Claire. morning, Chris. Thanks for joining us. we got a really interesting show. Well, let's start here. Sharks are some of the most fascinating and ecologically important species on Earth. At the same time, they're one of the most misunderstood, mythologized, and threatened animals on the planet. More often feared than revered, their role as cold-eyed predators of the deep has earned them a reputation as a major threat to humans. And the reality is just the reverse. It is us who present the single biggest ongoing threat to their survival. David Schiffman is a conservation biologist and author of the new book, Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. He will hopefully be joining us this morning, the first part of the show, to the wondrous nature of this species, its benefits to marine ecosystems, the threats that they face, and what we can do to support shark habitat and conservation. Then in the second part of the show, we'll speak with Anna Robinson here in the studio, and she'll, she'll be here to discuss her project, The Cool Down. It's a website that uh, she helped co-found that highlights and connects visitors to a cleaner, cooler technologies, businesses, services, and lifestyles that you might not be hearing about anywhere else. Environmental awareness and education, that's what This Green Earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. Nell Larson is away this week, so joining me as co-host is Claire Wiley. Our first guest is uh, David. will be David Schiffman. He is a marine conservation biologist at Arizona State University, and he is the author of the new book, Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. We hope to have him on soon. We're waiting to... Uh, to connect with him. Um, in the meantime, we're going to do what we usually do while we're waiting for... Uh, we're going to buy some time and talk gonna, about wolves. We're going to buy some time and we're going to... I have a little bit of information about wolves because I was reading on Nextdoor uh, a couple weeks ago about somebody out in Park Meadows uh, out walking and thought that they might have been might have been uh, uh, stalked or otherwise chased or so, not chased, stalked by what they might have thought was a wolf, and that was all they asked. It really, a, it's not they they confirmed it. It was like I'm. A, it looked bigger than a normal dog. It maybe was a coyote, but perhaps it was a wolf. And then responses to that included some people who would said that there are wolves in the state, and that indeed. There are wolves that, uh, that have been spotted in Park City. And I'm here to explain that um, two things. We're going, Lay to it on me. we're going to investigate this more okay. uh, in the coming weeks. Nell is, uh, going to re is reaching out to someone at Utah State University Perfect. who specializes in wolves and wolf populations here in the state. And we're going to get some, some clear facts and figures about wolves. Because right now, according to the Department of Wildlife Resources, there are no existing p 
attacks populations of wolves in the state of Utah. Uh, does that mean that there might be a lone wolf, literally, a lone wolf here that or made there its way? The there have been cases documented of wolves being in the state, but no packs of wolves. So what I thought while we're waiting uh, to get our guest uh, uh, call the call in, uh, I'll give you a little information, some facts and figures on how to tell the difference between a wolf and a coyote. Oh, right? yes. Well, because yeah, because I think that would be... Now, there are a lot of coyotes here. There are lots of coyotes. Coyotes is how yeah, you say Yeah, well, some coyotes are... Potatoes. I, I say coyotes. <laughs> um, there are plenty of coyotes around, and they can be mistaken. In fact, the wolf... There was a wolf that was shot and killed down in the southern part of the state several years ago uh, by a person who was out hunting coyotes. Mm. And he thought that that was a coyote. He shot it. He killed it. He walked up to it. He realized that he had just killed a wolf. He did the right thing. He immediately uh, alerted the authorities about that. Uh, he went through the, the correct procedures. Uh, and and the, the, the problem, uh, now I'll get a little bit off topic here about this. But first, the, there, is, there is a total open season to hunt coyotes. Here in Utah, you can hunt coyotes um, 365 days a year. There's no closed season on coyotes. As I understand, you can hunt coyotes with literally any type of, of uh, I did not know that. Uh, armature that, that you want. Mm. Yes. So they are, they are considered out-and-out -out pests, and uh, you can... There's no closed season on hunting of coyotes. So... And in fact, you can actually, uh, there is somewhat of a bounty on coyotes. You shoot and kill a coyote, you show proof of that uh, via its, its tail or its ear. I'm not sure what part of the body you have to remove to take in to uh, local authorities, show proof that you indeed killed a coyote and you will receive some type of monetary um, uh, uh, reward, we'll call it, quote-unquote, for that. So there is a bounty on coyotes that is all year round. And so as a result, it's no surprise that if there are wolves in, in the state, they could be mis, misidentified as coyotes. So here's a little, little uh, background while we're still waiting to get a hold of our, our first guest. Here's the difference in general between coyotes and wolves. Coyotes have more pointed muzzles and smaller nose pads than wolves. Okay. Coyote feet are more proportional to the diameter of their legs than wolf feet, which appear large for their legs. The total length of, a, of an adult coyote is generally four feet or less, uh, and, and wolves are, I, I believe, uh, can be quite a bit larger. Coyotes weigh between 25 and 40 pounds, and have a narrow triangular-shaped head, wolves can weigh much more. Um, let's see. Coyotes' chests are narrow. Their legs look long. Their feet... So the coyotes generally look more like dogs, let's say. Well, they wolves seem are... probably smaller in stature. Yes. than Of course, oh. smaller is relative because when you see an animal out in the wild, it, it looks... 
it may look like a wolf, but you don't have a comp immediate comparison. It's like if a coyote Fair and enough. a wolf were standing, it had to be standing. It's Fair just like, enough. oh, the one to the left is the coyote because it's smaller than the wolf. To so it, it's, it's just in general um, that these are somewhat of the differences. Coyotes are just going to be smaller and thinner in nature than, than wolves are. Um, but I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, let's, you know, and I think what we're going to do, it looks like we're having a, a little bit of a connection issue with the first guest. So we had had on earlier this year a very fascinating discussion regarding mountain lions as we're talking about animals that uh, we have encroached on their territory, but now we feel like they're coming into our spaces and our places. And uh, there's an interesting discussion because there are obviously a lot of mountain lion spottings in and around our area. And we had spoken to David Stoner uh, earlier uh, in about September when um, we were seeing more and more of these cases of mountain lions. So we're going to kick it on over to a previously recorded broadcast of David Stoner right here, right now on this Green Earth. All right. Joining us now for the second half of the show today is David Stoner. He is um, an assistant professor at Utah State University, and he's here to talk with us about mountain lions in Utah. David, thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure, Nell. Sorry I couldn't be there in person. Ah, uh, yes, we're sorry we missed you today, but we'll aim for that next time. <laughs> Good, yes. Um, so our, our first question for you has to do kind of with population trends of mountain lions. It seems like in our communities up here in Summit and Wasatch counties that there's an increased awareness or an increased number of sort of sightings of mountain lions. And we're wondering if this has to do with population trends or if this just has to do with all of our ring doorbell cameras and our camera traps and the technology that we're using now that enables us to see them more. Do you have any sense? of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I you know, to, to back up just a little bit, there are really two big factors that drive mountain lion population dynamics. And the first and biggest one is fluctuations in their, their prey base, which influences the number of kittens that survive from one year to the next. And the next one would be uh, hunting pressure that, that is, uh, yeah, it varies from one year to the next as a function of management objectives. Uh, so I, I think in this case, well, for one thing, it's hard to determine what the trends are. These animals are notoriously difficult to mm -hmm. study and to monitor. Uh, but I think you're on to something there in that the more likely explanation for increased sightings is simply the increase in the amount of observations that we're making. I mean, if you think about the advent of uh, combining cameras and video cameras with cell phones within the last 15 years, and then as you point out, uh, camera traps in the woods for recreational purposes, and then our own uh, home security systems, what what's showing up is that we're seeing these animals are, are perhaps uh, in our midst more frequently than we had assumed. Uh, and I, I think it's more a matter of intensive observations than it is increases in population abundance. I mean, these animals are notoriously difficult to observe and they're secretive. They're, they're active at night, not so much during the day. Uh, they don't really draw attention to themselves. They blend in. So they are hard to see and, and therefore um, until all of these cameras and, and uh, 
photographic technology started, uh, we, we inundated the wilderness with these things. They were there all along. We just didn't know it. <laughs> and I think that this um, this has brought about like more conversation about people's per- perspectives on living sort of amidst these creatures that we maybe didn't realize were passing through the backyard or, um, you, you know, through the neighborhood or on the favorite trail. And um, I think there's a little bit of a divide there. Some people appreciate the beauty and are excited to see this piece of our ecosystem and other people are more concerned about safety. And so we're going to talk um, more about mountain lions sort of as a whole in the state. But I, I want to talk a little bit about safety in mountain lion habitat where we all live, you know, what are what is the actual risk? You know, what is the level of risk? Can you give us a sense of that? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question. That's probably the most common question I'm asked. <laughs> I bet uh, human safety. Um, <clears throat> so there's there's a lot there. Two two things are at work. One one is a bona fide concern for our well being, and this is. I would call it a, a residual instinct from our our ancient past, where, hmm. from times when human beings or Homo sapiens really were a prey item for a lot of things. Hmm. Uh, so we, you know, our our innate fear of the darkness and fear of predators is it's real. It, it there is a reason for it. It's not purely irrational. Even if in the modern day, it, it is not the threat that it once was, perhaps 100,000 years ago. So that's what, you have that at work. Secondly, you have uh, pretty extensive media coverage when there is an attack on a human being. And, and part of this is just because it is so rare, it captures the public's attention and and it, it, again it taps into that that primal fear but the statistics on attacks are are actually quite different uh to give you a, a little background and i i won't go on at great length here but this figure the number of attacks on human beings has been tracked very closely in north america well the united states and canada at least for for the past 30 years and in that in about the past 130 years so a little over a century there have been i, I want to say something on the order of 150 to 200 attacks on human beings in the United States and Canada. Of those, about a quarter of them were fatal. So what that amounts to is one to three, uh, I'll call them encounters per year somewhere in North America, of which 25% of those are fatal, uh, largely children. Spatially, there's another trend that's worth worth noting that these attacks are not distributed evenly throughout mountain lion country. So if we if we look at how they're distributed, they fall disproportionately in several places. The first of which is British Columbia. The province of British Columbia accounts for about half of all mountain lion attacks that have been recorded. Wow. And of those, half of those, so a full 25% occurred on Vancouver Island. Wow. This is, it's unknown why. Uh, there's a lot of speculation, and hypotheses about what might be happening there. Island populations often behave differently. But just recognize that 
that they're clumped. And outside of British Columbia, you've had a, 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 quite a few in California and in Colorado. Utah is notable in that no one has ever been killed by a mountain lion that we know of in the state of Utah. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say there haven't been close encounters or brushes or, you know, uh, people being uh, <laughs> probably... Uh, frightened beyond mm-hmm. the comparison right. mm-hmm. uh, but no no fatalities how, uh, so that I, I'm sorry I, just jump in how many yeah. have you observed over your what decades of research how many encounters uh, have you had well m- many I, I can't oh. count them all because um I've been doing it for a long time, and uh, I started in, in California, and I've, I've studied mountain lions pretty intensively in three or four parts of Utah, and now I'm working in, in Nevada as well. And in that time, we've we've captured and radio collared many many mountain lions. Um, but in terms, if if I you know, recognizing that that's that's because of my role in the science of these animals. Mm-hmm. Um, if I if I take that hat off and just put on, uh, you know, average citizen hiking in the woods, uh, my tally is somewhere between zero and one. Well, wow. Okay. <laughs> that's that's yeah, mine's, and, and mine's always, at one. Yours at one. I, one. I, I, What's yours I'll at, say friend? one. So I spooked something in the brush a few years ago hiking up here in Logan Canyon, and I think it was a mountain lion, but I can't say for certain. So, if you want to be generous, one. If you want to be cautious, <laughs> zero. Right. That you know of, I, of course. Right. You, yes. You may have had yes. uh, quote unquote. Uh, unconfirmed encounters uh, because they are out there and they're observing us. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, these these animals are the masters of disguise and of, of um, being being very secretive. Um, and that's and in part, you know, we think about one of the misconceptions that I. I encounter a lot is the idea that mountain lions are an endangered species, that they were once abundant and now they're rare. And that's not entirely false. Uh, they were extirpated from most of the eastern states and Canadian provinces. Uh, but in the West, they're quite widely distributed. And and they are still, they are still here. And I would argue that one of the reasons they have survived in the face of the changes that have been brought about by human endeavor broadly um, is that is these reasons that they are secretive they do not draw attention to themselves they they travel largely at night and during the day when they're bedded they tend to be in really remote areas uh, very reclusive They, they do not draw attention to themselves the way some other animals do such as bears and wolves that are very vocal and can be quite nonchalant around people hmm. so uh, this is my own personal hypothesis but uh, one of the reasons that they're still here and then I, w- I would add to that and this is an important part is they do very well in rough terrain uh, they, they are well adapted to to rugged uh, remote uh, environments, uh, whereas a lot of other animals are, are not. That's their specialty, that they are cats. They are able to uh, move through broken terrain 
quite easily. And so this has given them a natural advantage. It, it's staying alive and, and uh, remaining uh, part of our ecosystems. So kind of circling back to the, the I guess, the presence and the, you know, the safety of mountain lions, it sounds like it's exceedingly rare for there to be attacks and particularly here in Utah for whatever reason. Um, yes. Are there things that we do that can make us sort of more or less uh, vulnerable or make us more or less safe? Yeah, yes, uh, that's a great question. So, yes, it's it's rare and unlikely, but nevertheless, it does happen. And it is a, a, a valid concern, especially for people living on the urban interface or that are using wildland environments regularly. And so a couple of things that come to mind. One is to keep in mind the natural circadian rhythms of the mountain lion. They are obligate carnivores. They survive by hunting other animals. They do not eat any vegetation. Hmm. So their, their behavioral patterns are predicated on their major prey species, which in most of the West means mule deer and to a second, uh, to some degree, elk. Elk and mule deer are the major food resources. So um, the, the people I work with that are in environments like Park City or more rural areas, the first bit of advice is do not do things that will lure animals into your yard, especially mule deer. Um, and they are naturally drawn to our yards because of irrigation, because of landscaping, ornamental gardens, vegetable gardens, um, bird feeders are all things that can attract deer. And to the extent that you are attracting deer, you may get more than you bargain for. So <laughs> that's one thing people can do to reduce the odds of having a mountain lion show up in their, their property is, is uh, do not encourage other wildlife to be there. From a, a more from the standpoint of activity, I have a friend here who is an avid jogger and we were at a party one time and she said, asked the same question. And I said, well, <laughs> joggers are disproportionately represented in the, the victims of mountain lion attacks. And that is because they are often in an environment where deer may be active and they are behaving like a prey item, moving slowly through the woods. So for the joggers out there, I would say try to reduce the amount of time you spend jogging in riparian areas at dawn and dusk, because that's when the mountain lions become active, particularly dusk. So as the sun goes down, that's when the mountain lions become active. That's when they are actively hunting. They are looking for food. Uh, by dawn, they're, they're settling down, but they are still active in those, those twilight hours. So to the extent that you can stay out of the habitat they're in, and I say riparian areas because they're just so productive and there's always food for a predator in the riparian zone. They're just more productive. There's more things to eat there. And by, uh, and by riparian, you're meaning like a stream habitat kind of. Yes. Yeah. Uh, pardon me. Uh, stream side environments. Mm -hmm. uh, so the space and the time, if you can avoid that, you will be uh, in better shape. Uh, children alone, that's. Yeah. Again, I, I hate to say this, it, it may upset some people, but small children are the number one victims of mountain lion attacks, and it's because they, they fit the profile much better. Uh, they're, they're smaller, they're more manageable, they uh, are less capable of, of fighting back. So mm -hmm. 
children should not be unattended in, in these uh, critical hours and 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 uh, areas, you know, camp camping and things. I, I mean, just as an example of that, I. Uh, when my wife and I were much younger, we we drove to California and we we stopped in central Nevada and camped on this creek in a very lonesome area. And it was sundown and there were deer everywhere. And our daughter was in that Frankenstein stage of uh, she could walk, but you know, really stood out like a sore thumb because she was wobbling. And I, I, I tell you, we're setting up camp and I had hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. I was suddenly the, my inner caveman was was quite aware of the circumstances oh. and yeah <laughs> so you, you think like a mountain lion now you it's it's hardwired into you i think it is <laughs> it, i i guess so and uh, it, it was fine of course but it, it there's just something there that that gets triggered you know the, the that that old instinct so when you say you know what can people do? These are actions they can take. Make their properties less attractive to wildlife. Uh, and and then if it really is concerning to you, avoid those activities that might make you blend in with a prey item. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with David Stoner. He is an assistant professor at Utah State University. And one last question, sort of as it relates to mountain lion risk or safety, pets, our dogs, our cats. I I think that, you know, there's some question, are they... Um, are they, could they be drawing mountain lions to the yard as prey? And also on the flip side, if you are out jogging or hiking on the trail, does having a dog with you increase or, or decrease right, risk? Right. Yeah, Nell, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I got pontificating. Uh, that's excellent <laughs> point. Uh, you know, I'll admit to our listeners, I've seen you present before and you pre present some fascinating information. So I, I want to make sure we get it all out there. We got time. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed our, our discussions over the years. Um, yeah, pets can be an attractant. So for, in, again, going back to making your yard, I, I don't want to say wildlife unfriendly. That That is certainly not the message I want to convey, but don't don't attract things in. And um, again, this may be unsettling for some listeners, but dogs and cats in a yard can be an attractant for predators. And indeed, the inverse of that is jogging with a dog or uh, you know, a dog with you on your camping trip. It can be a, a preventative measure. A dog, you know, the old idea about dogs and cats don't get along, that translates quite readily in, into the wildlife world. Uh, for example, a study I'm running right now in southern Nevada, coyotes are the number three prey item on the list for the mountain lions. They, they eat a lot of coyotes. Uh, so a dog chained up at the house is... Uh, is bait essentially and this has been demonstrated over and over and over again uh, many many uh, mountain lions in town uh it, they're they're in killing pets house cats dogs chicken coops um uh, sheep 
goats. Goats are a favorite. I mean, they love goats. Uh, and, and I, <laughs> so any of these these domestic animals can be an attractant. But again, the inverse of that is a dog. Well, a, a medium to large size dog, I should say. Uh, little yapper dogs are are not particularly <laughs> uh, protective in any environment. Uh, uh, the, uh, so that, yeah. The, the big dogs can be uh, a deterrent in, in a wildland setting. Uh, all right. So, two-part question here. In general, what's the what's the estimate of the number of mountain lions within the state of Utah? And can I get a permit to go out and hunt mountain lions? Uh, the answer to that, the, the answer to the second part is yes. Uh, mountain lions are classified as a big game animal in Utah and most of the other western states. Not all, but most. Uh, so yes, that that is um, something that one can do. The the first part of your question, the number is that. That's where we start to get into. <laughs> it, well, let's see how I've got to phrase this carefully on the radio. Um, it, there's a lot of uncertainty in our, our population estimates. One of the things that the, the public demands of the state is an accounting for animals like this. Yeah. Uh, all the big game animals, really. Um, and as I noted, mountain lions are difficult to count. So our estimates come with a lot of uncertainty. But they range from somewhere around 1,500 on the low end up to about 4,000 on the high end. So we tend to settle in at somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500, recognizing that the numbers fluctuate from year to year uh, for the reasons I I articulated earlier. Um, But it really is hard to say. They, okay. We just we can't go up in airplanes and count them. We right. we can't. They don't run around in big groups. Uh, we do have radio telemetry studies that give us an ability to measure how much space they use and and how the densities vary in one environment to another, and we can extrapolate that to some degree. But that comes with a lot of risk because keep in mind the you know, the mountain lion tracks its food resources through the years so again deer and elk the ungulates they're migrating in response to snow snowpack in the high country and vegetation green up in the in the uh, you know the springtime and summer and so those the mountain lions are moving with their prey and, and the density can vary tremendously through the years so let's say park city is is a, a snow basin it, it, it holds a lot of snow it's not going to hold a whole lot of big game animals and therefore the numbers in the winter time of mountain lions are, are going to be lower uh, than they would be in the summer hmm. uh, so uh, again lots of lots of error in our estimates it, it is an ongoing effort to to uh, get better calculations of, of how many there are and in, in, in develop techniques for tracking their their abundance through time, but it's still an open area of of research. We have about five minutes left, and I want to ask you about how how do you do your research? How do you find these cats and, you know, color them and track their whereabouts? Yeah, it's it's a lot of work. It's it's tremendously (laughs) time-consuming. So 
typically there, there are many ways you know many ways to skin a cat many ways to catch a cat the most effective way and, and the most common way in utah and the states that have snowy winters is to use hound dogs and this involves so what we've done over the years we we hired professional trackers who have dogs that are trained to trail cats specifically and what we would do uh during our field studies so so for the listening audience i I did my dissertation work out on the kennecott mine and uh, the camp williams national guard base right next door and i've worked in some other parts of utah as well Uh, what we would do is go out on horseback with the dogs and just travel ridges roads trails trying to find a track in the snow and that in itself is extremely time consuming because you're looking for a needle in a haystack i mean these animals at their highest densities in utah occur about three adults per hundred square kilometers Mm. Uh, so there just aren't that many even when there's a lot of them there aren't that many of them Mm. uh so if if you get lucky you find a track it's fresh enough that the dogs can work with it you get the dogs lined out on it make sure that they're following it in the right direction because they're not going by sight they're going by smell and uh, dogs are not as fast as a mountain lion but they've got big lungs they can run all day long and the mountain lion is built more for speed they are um uh, the sprinters, sprinters of the world, right. uh, but they don't have the stamina. And so if those dogs can catch up to it, the mountain lion will take refuge in usually, uh, well, hopefully in a tree, sometimes in a, a cliff face, a pile of rocks, a cave. Uh, out at Kennecott, they would run into culverts, which was problematic for a variety of reasons. Um, but once they are at bay like that, then then we can we can approach them pretty closely and use a tranquilizer gun to to drug them and then lower them safely out of the tree, and and then uh, take measurements, apply a radio collar. And then once you have a radio collar on them, and, and this is something that is uh, the technology is we've really benefited from in the last 20 years, uh, have GPS units in them. And the, 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 so the collar itself will record the animal's location at some predetermined interval, let's say every three or four hours. And what's happening now is that those data points, those locations can be beamed to a satellite which then can beam beam them down to your computer via email. And so you can actually uh, put the points on a map that it's near real time. And that's how we find what they've been eating, where they've gone, how they've associated with other other mountain lions, uh, how close they get to to human um, environments. Everything we want to know about them can be inferred from their their movements and and their uh, travel routes. It's incredible. Yeah, thirty <laughs> seconds. Is there, is that information that's available to citizens to say go online and see where the mountain lions are? No. Oh, okay. No, no, that's <laughs> less than thirty. That's seconds. top secret. That's top. Uh, <laughs> that kind of information could be misused. So ah. it, it is. Um, I mean, if you want, I can come down and give a talk and show you some things. But it's but. unfortunately not available for. Um, the, the, the average citizen to, wow. to observe. That, that's interesting. Okay. 
Well, you'll, we gotta you'll share with us the big picture trends. But yeah, as, as Chris said, we have to wrap up. Um, David, I think we could have talked with you for another hour, yes. but thank you for joining us for half the show today. We'll have you yeah, back. It's, it's been my pleasure. And, and um, again, I'm, COVID hit our family last week, so I, I couldn't make it down in person, but I look forward to visiting with you again. That's sure. right. Next sure. time. Well, that uh, was David Stoner, uh, research assistant professor at Utah State University, joining us this morning to talk all about mountain lions in Utah. Thanks so much. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. Nell Larson is away this week, so joining me as co-host is Claire Wiley. Good morning. And uh, for the remaining part of the show, we're going to speak with Anna Robertson. She is co-founder and head of content for the website The Cool Down, and she's also uh, a local here in Park City, which is always we always appreciate that uh, that people can come in local local content with respect to environmental awareness and mindfulness. So, Anna, thank you for your coming on into the show this morning. Thanks for having me. I love the show and uh, so grateful for the conversations that are happening all the time on this show. All right. Climate. Well, let's get right to it. The cool down. Give us uh, a thumbnail sketch of, of the, the mission and objectives of that. Yeah, so the cool down is the first mainstream climate brand. We are a place for all audiences to come and engage in climate content. Um, we want to connect millions of people to climate topics and make these topics less overwhelming, a bit more hopeful, uh, more actionable, and uh, just broaden the conversation on climate, which is which is so critical. What are the areas, let's say, that you that you cover? Is it is it science? Is it policy? Is it uh, products, technology, all of the above, maybe? Yeah, um, a little bit of all of the above. We're really focused on topics that matter in people's daily lives. Um, we are all about showcasing sort of good news around climate, which we feel like there's not enough of, uh, not enough reporting on. There's a lot of great innovation um, happening in the climate space that we think um, is really exciting in the effort to create a cleaner, cooler future. So we feature a lot of incredible innovations that are happening now that are coming down the pike. Um, we talk about food, we talk about health, we talk about gardening, we have home content. Uh, we have a website, we have social media accounts on Instagram and TikTok. We have two new newsletters uh, that just that just dropped that you can sign up for. Um, we have a weekly feature called Here on Earth, which showcases three great uh, positive stories. And we do a lot of profiles of people who are innovative who are just regular people, who are moms and dads who see needs in their community um, and are doing something about it to try to create a better future for their kids. So, so I'm like, like you allude to, I guess the the impetus for this uh, site or and your efforts was, I guess, you and others, um, your, your 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 team or so, found that there was not enough as you say, good news with respect to uh, addressing or actions that people can take and businesses could probably take to have an impact on a warming world or so. So uh, is that, is, do I have that right? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've been in the media space for over 20 years. I was at ABC News and Disney for a long time, and then Yahoo, and then worked with um, with the ABC-owned television stations, the local stations across the country, and um, you know, really felt that a lot of the the media that was out there about climate topics was really pretty overwhelming for people who are busy in their lives and have a lot to worry about. And it felt like a lot of the media was focused on doom and gloom. Um, a lot of climate media has been very text-based. There hasn't been a lot of great, um, just engaging and fun social media content. Um, and we felt like there was an opportunity as I started to kind of get curious and dig into the space. I just saw a tremendous amount of innovation that people weren't hearing about. And I think when all people are hearing about is negative, overwhelming news that there's nothing that can be done, um, they're not going to be very motivated to make changes. So we're hoping to, first of all, expose people to some of those positive stories that might give people more hope about the future, and then also make it easier for people to be part of the solution. Um, it's just way too hard to find information and also to, to buy sustainable products, to sort through all the certifications and do all the research. We've got busy lives, and we need we need some help kind of getting, getting to those answers. And so a lot of what we do is just try to make it easier for people to engage in the topic um, and be part of the the community yeah well I'll, I will I will say that I think there's room for both <laughs> that you, that sometimes people consider negative and doom and gloom as honest reality um, and so so there's opportunity there's, I guess you have to take that doom and gloom or that that reality and process it digest it um, and then want to do something about it. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to so, be Pollyanna about it. I mean, we, we're not just, just telling positive stories. We're going to be realistic. And, and when there are, you know, a lot of us are seeing the effects of extreme weather, even here in, in our community, um, on a daily basis. And so we're going to explain to people in plain English, a lot of the climate communications has been in really complicated language in you know a lot of words a lot of text we're going to explain what's happening to our planet and connect people to that and then also take that step to give them something that they can do about it some way that they can be involved okay so let's talk about some of the examples of what 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 people can do or what what you do to kind of like cut through like you say the 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 jungle or labyrinth of information that's out there with let's say with respect to products um, because uh, there's lots of greenwashing that goes on out there. And it seems like every company now is in one form or another environmentally mindful green, you know, but, but it ranges from what I call minty green to dark emerald green, <laughs> the, true, the true believers and the true processors of in, environmental activity. Does your site help us kind of cut through that? that all that noise out there? Absolutely. I mean, I think first and foremost, if you don't need a new product, don't buy it. And our product uh, statement and mission statement sort of says that clearly, right? There are incredible places to go in yeah. our community to buy thrifted products. But if it, you know, we can't expect people to stop buying products. So what we do is we do the research for you. We sort through the certifications. We do, you know, we test the products ourselves. We actually have a whole series of gift guides we've just launched for the holiday season. Mm -hmm. We've got a new Instagram account called Green Product Guide. Um, on Instagram, 
program where you can you can find gifts in all different categories and we really test them out and try to give you a few different options at different price points to just make it easier so that you can um, you know you can you can find things that are great and I have to say like there's nothing better than finding a product that works just as well if not better than your previous product that 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 also is sustainable um, so we're really excited about sharing those there's incredible founders and companies that are creating really innovative products that are so much better for the planet and so um, we're really excited about sharing those and you take a broad look you do look across our nation maybe internationally for these products and for these companies but also we had talked about locally there's a lot of things that people can do right within our communities and you have also spearheaded some programs within our schools can you talk about mm. some of those Absolutely. I mean, we're so lucky in Park City. Obviously, we've got this beautiful surroundings that we all want to protect. And there's so many great people working on this topic and great places to go, whether it's fulfilled um, out in the outlets to, to sort of buy things that are that are zero waste products. Um, we I've gotten very involved um, in the sustainability space in the school district. Um, so started asking some questions about how we could do better um, to teach our kids every day about what 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 they're doing in school. So we um, in partnership with Park City Eats, um, we're able to, to implement mm -hmm. composting program at Jeremy Ranch at my elementary school. Mm -hmm. um, I sit on a sustainability advisory board uh, across the school district and work with Recycle Utah and Mary Closser um, and the EATS team and have, you know, have gotten uh, now composting at almost all of the elementary schools or all of the Park City schools, which is super awesome because the kids just love it. They have a lot of fun with it and they're learning something and they that they bring home to their families and ask about, you know, what is composting? How can I compost at home? And some of those families have reached out to us have have joined spoil to soil to compost in their own communities we just did a huge pumpkin composting initiative and it creates a ripple effect and you know even though the cool down is a obviously like is a, is a bigger site aimed at a much broader audience all of this starts locally and so what we're hoping is to provide you know modeling so that people start to open their eyes to these things and once your eyes are open you can't unsee it so I get calls all the time from my friends and people in the community who say you know how, how can I recycle something or where can I go to buy a great thrift product or you know we, we brought rain barrels into our school we wrapped our sandwiches at our art fest in paper instead of plastic like these are the things that actually do create a ripple effect and we know that when we see these things in our community when your neighbor gets solar panels you're more likely to ask about solar panels and so um, really exciting to see sort of like this bigger picture thing that we're building with the cool down and, and that that ripple effect um, among millions of people and then to encourage people to sort of take that action locally whether that's shopping in a local store here in Park City or going thrifting here in Park City um, or, you know, changing your job or whatever, big or small, um, there are so many ways to get involved. Yeah, and I think the key is, too, that we were talking about earlier, that we can all do better. We can all look for ways in our lives that we can do better. Right. I think it's important that, yeah, that, that for example, every, every sandwich matters. And that, you know, that, okay, I wrap my sandwich in paper instead of plastic. What's, what's the point? We, we've, we have to do a good, better job at addressing that what's the point attitude. And I guess that's what you're attempting to do. Um, on your profile page, every uh, uh, a person involved in the site has a light bulb moment. What was your light bulb moment to to do something. Yeah, I mean, personally, I've got two little kids. Um, I lived in the Los Angeles area when I worked for Disney a couple years ago, evacuated from wildfires at three in the morning with my kids for several weeks. Um, I couldn't send my kids to preschool because the air quality was so poor mm. um, that they asked to keep the kids home. So I kind of realized 
there was something going on. Um, and I think we're all seeing that in our in our local communities. I also got very involved in my work um, in the local news space in weather coverage. And, you know, weather is the most important topic to local news consumers. And I thought, hmm. you know, not enough people were sort of connecting the dots between the impact of extreme weather and, and our local communities. And so I did a lot of work um, working with National Geographic, working with ABC News, working with the ABC local stations to to try to connect those dots. Um, and through the eyes of the local the local heroes, the local meteorologists, the local news teams that they respected, right? Because we know how much influence that can have. And so um, produced a special for Hulu called Climate of Hope, where we told the story of climate change through the eyes of the meteorologists and the changes that they were seeing in their weather. And then a really actionable part of like what you can do in your own life um, to make a difference. So I think from a career perspective, I just felt like, you know, we all talk about technology to solve climate. What about stories? Stories are super important. And especially, you know, meeting people where they are, pitching a big tent, finding people on social media in time when they, they don't have a lot of time to consume this stuff. How can we make it more accessible, more digestible, and a little more hopeful without guilt and shame? Um, we all can do better, but we all, you know, we all want to protect this beautiful place where we live. And so I felt like, you know, put me to work as a storyteller so that I can help to hopefully bring more people into the conversation. I'm a big fan of guilt and shame. So <laughs> you are, Chris. Yeah. Oh, I've, huge, I've been on the other end of huge that. Fan. But I'm going to start my own content. <laughs> content. But so um, what is the path to get to the cool down? What, um, what should people do? How do they uh, get involved with it? What is your website? Yeah, the website is thecooldown.com. Um, our Instagram is the underscore cool underscore down. And as I said, we just launched a green product guide, which is at green pot product guide, which is exclusively about sustainable products. Uh, we also have two newsletters. So one goes out on Wednesday and it's just really simple three stories that are good news stories each week. And then on Friday, um, a simple thing you can do in your life to make a swap um, and to, to do a little better. So hopefully people will sign up for our newsletters, um, follow our accounts. Please feel free to reach out to me if you're in the in the Park City community. I love meeting people who are on the same path. And we're telling a lot of local stories too, because we have a lot of innovators in this in this community. Sure. So um, yeah, you can reach me at Anna at thecooldown.com. And uh, yeah, we're super excited to talk to anybody about what we're building. And and last minute or so, how do you measure success? You know, what, what does success look like with respect to the cool down? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, our goal is to reach, uh, you know, 10 million people a month in the next year. We're reaching in our just our first two months, uh, first month, we've, we've reached over a million people and we're growing super fast. Um, and no climate brand has ever reached millions of people that are outside of that sort of eco sustainability space. So we want to reach those people and then we want to drive a smaller group of people who are going to take action. So um, that's going to be the measure of impact. Can we, can we bring more people into this tent and into this conversation and then drive people to make some changes in their life, whatever that looks like for them? Anna Robinson, she is co-founder and head of content for thecooldown.com, among other uh, ways to get in touch. And also Anna at thecooldown.com. That's right. All right. I hope Fantastic. my inbox is flooded. Thanks we for having so me, guys. We hope so, too. Oh, thanks for being here. Thank we enjoyed that. We'll have that. you back. Absolutely. We'd All love right. Uh, break, and we got to come back. we got to wrap up. It's this green earth. Welcome back to this green earth. It's time to wrap things up, so let's thank our sponsors and underwriters who make this show possible. They include Recycle Utah, Utah Open Lands Conservation Association, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Utah Properties, San Francisco Design, and of course, as always, listeners like you. You can email us your thoughts, comments, and ideas for topics and stories to 
This Green Earth, all one word, at kpcw.org. The interviews for this show will be posted on the KPCW website later today. Thanks again for joining us, and thanks to our guests. And remember, this is KPCW 91.7 FM Park City. Tune in and listen like a local. We'll see you all next week. NPR News is coming up in about 10 seconds.